Welcome back to the Time for Heroes podcast. On the podcast this week, I have Mark Morris, front man of the Blue Tones, and in later years, he's done a lot of solo stuff. Mark was a big influence in me and the Britpop era when, he, when the, his band came out. Uh, so we're going to touch on his full career and what he's up to now. But before we do that, we're going to get back to the start. What was life like for you, Mark, growing up? Uh, it was all right, really. I grew up in Hounslow, which is a suburb west of London, um, near Heathrow, near to Heathrow Airport. So mm-hmm. it was a town that didn't have high unemployment, largely because everyone works at the airport. So it was, and it was a town that had, um, it was quite a multicultural part of London at that time, being also thanks to it being so close to this, you know, international gateway. Mm -hmm. So where I grew up and when I went to school, I always grew up around people from different cultures and different backgrounds and or people that might have been born in other nations or their parents were. And so I think I was quite lucky in that we were exposed to a lot of things at an early age, my brother and I, because we went to the same school, obviously, and... and, um, knocked around in the same places mm-hmm. and um so there was always there was always a lot of opportunity going through my like junior school and into secondary school there was always a lot of opportunities to be involved with music and and sports and stuff like that which was where the facilities were really good where we get the comprehensive that we went to so Hounslow at that time it was just good fun it's lots it was it's a working class place so there's grew up on a on a, on a couple of ca- uh, council estates and of course they're great places to go up because there's always loads of children around so there's always something to do there's always someone to hang out with or play football with or climb a tree with and all that sort of stuff so yeah. I look back on my childhood very fondly there's one of your songs I think it's on the second album where you, you mentioned the reservoir is that a place in your childhood or is that just a fictional Oh, it's a fictional place. There was a reservoir relatively near to where we grew up. Uh, in um, where was it? It's near Staines. I can't remember the name right. of the place. It begins with an L. But there was a big reservoir. No, but no, it, the reservoir for us was um, we used to have this thing. Um, well, after I'd left home, Adam Scott and Ed's, the whole band, we used to share a house together, and it sort of become a meeting place for all of our friends. Right. More or less like a, a youth club. We had a pool table, we had a darts board, you know, we had a games console and we'd be sitting around, you could smoke weed, etc. you know. So it was uh, a place that all our friends would come to after they finished work or college or whatever they were doing. And every few months, particularly over the summer, every few weeks over the summer when the weather was nice, we would all um, congregate hours at about eight o'clock in the evening and drop some ecstasy and then walk to this park which is about three miles away and we'd always go to the same spot in the center of this forest where there was a fallen tree and make a camp there until the sun came up and just take our own music and dance through the middle of the night and that for us I suppose in terms of that particular song would be this place this reservoir this uh, Xanadu (laughs) yeah 
It, it's funny, isn't it? Because probably everybody growing up has had that sort of thing, that that reservoir or whatever it is. We had we used to get down in the woods. There was a cricket pitch in the middle of the woods. That's where we used to get down. And the same sort of stuff as you're talking about, just yeah, on night camping out and taking hundreds of drugs and stuff like that. And yes, we didn't have tons of money, so sort of going to clubs and going to bars was wasn't an option. And this way, we could also guarantee that we'd like the music as we take our <laughs> own. <laughs> so were these all kind of grown up together at school then? No, I didn't um, meet Adam until. Um, after just after I'd left home so I just left I just finished college I took a year off after college doing my A-levels and I was I went back to university for a few months and then I dropped out and got a job and I was working at our price and I left home and I was living in a shared house with three other people and one of them happened to be Adam who I'd seen around town before on the scene because he I was in a band at the time and he was in a different band and there was this kind of begrudging respect I was a little bit intimidated by him because he was a very good guitarist at a very early age and I think he might have been a little bit intimidated by me because m my band was better than his <laughs> 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 and uh and I always thought he was like because I'd seen his band a couple of times and he was he stood out a mile and then when we moved in together, uh, we had like, you know, identical record collections. It was just a natural step that we were going to do something together. Uh -huh. He came on board. He joined the band that Scott and I were already in, a band called, we were in a band called The Bottle Garden. Uh -huh. We were, you know, booking gigs for ourselves at local pubs and that sort of thing. This would have been about 1990. When I was, yeah, like 18, going on 19. Going back a bit then, but when did you kind of, when did you find yourself musically? When did you, when did you first get guitars, stuff like that? When? Was it uh, secondary school? I was, I was big into sports for the first few years at school. Uh, um, football was an obsession. I used to play for several different teams. Like every night of the week, I was either playing a game or training. And then I got an injury when I was about 14, fell out of a tree. Right. And so I couldn't play football for a year. And so I had to kind of really change my whole social circle at school because I'd be playing football at every break time, every lunchtime. After school, I'd go home, get changed, go play football on the green. And I couldn't do that anymore. And I started hanging out in the music department instead, rather than go and watch all my mates play and feel low because I couldn't join in. And I met... Um, a whole different group of people, or the school band, essentially, all the kids in school who had like a bass guitar and an electric guitar and a drum kit and that sort of stuff, or used to school drum kit. Uh -huh. And from there, I just started messing around with uh, with a guitar. And one day, this music teacher walked past and said, oh, "I didn't know you played guitar, Mark." And I said, "Well, I don't." And he said, "Well, you've got a very natural strumming action." And for me, that was all I needed to hear. It was like, right, I better get some lessons there. So I, that's when I started to take guitar lessons and when I got my first acoustic guitar. And it was when I say guitar lessons, it was it was never like reading music or learning to write music correctly. It was, I'd just take a cassette in and say, can you teach me how to play this? 
you're taking like the cult and the Smiths stuff and say, can you teach me this lick? <laughs> and that's, and it went from there really. And so I was in a couple of school bands that play cover versions. And I always liked being in the school productions and that sort of thing and getting up and singing a song. But it was after, when I was, when I was 15, I had a summer job through the whole of the school holidays. And I was getting paid a fiver a day to work on, it was like just like a labourer on a on a building. So where my uncle was working on a site where they were building two houses. So I'd go there, get there at half four, I'll be at, a leap, at half eight and leave at half four. And I'd get a fiver and I saved all my money up over the summer holidays and bought a bass guitar. Right. So, so I had a bass guitar and a little 12 watt Marshall practice amp. And and I'd play in the bedroom and I'd take it to school and mess around with it at school. But I wasn't in a band at that point. And then in April of 1989, I went to see the Stone Roses. Uh, they played a gig in London at a place called um, the ICA. It was a Monday night. And I went with my mate from college and his mate, a guy called Robin. And I'd never met Robin before. But we just hit it off. Um, you know, after the gig, it, was Robin, it turned out Robin's in a band. And they're looking for a bass player. So I said, oh, just so happens, I've got a bass guitar. <laughs> uh, so I joined the Bottle Garden. It was Robin's band. He, he started the whole thing off. Um, that, and I joined on bass. And then it became quite evident that the guy that we had on guitar, even though I'd only been playing a few months, was even worse than me. So I said, I'll tell you what, why don't I, get, why don't I play guitar as well? And... We'll get my brother to stand in on on bass for our practices until we get a bass player. And so that was it. That's how Scott first joined the band. And it was only supposed to be a temporary fix. But he ended up quickly becoming like the best musician in the band. <laughs> and was he, was he able to, was he playing music then as well? Or did you teach him bass? Well, no, it was, it was one of those things because we shared a bedroom. When I wasn't playing with my acoustic guitar, mm -hmm. he would be playing it. And he's one of those people who just seems to pick things up real quickly. He, you know, it seemed to be no real effort for him to do the things that it had taken me months and months to perfect. Yeah. That so I wasn't, no, I wasn't teaching him at all. It was, it was my thing, but he was just doing it as a... You know, in those days, we didn't have the internet and all these games consoles to keep us occupied. You just be in your room and there's a guitar, might as well mess around with that. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, you you mentioned, like, the story, the injury at football, and then kind of it, that's how you kind of changed course. Obviously, in recent weeks, I've had Andrew Cushion, I've had Damon Manchella, mm -hmm. uh, Jack Jones for trampoline, all pretty much the same story. They were all footballers. Obviously, Damon got an injury, broke his leg, um, picked up a bass guitar because he couldn't do in for six months. Yeah, wow. Much the same with the cushion. Yeah. Pretty much the same with Jack Jones. He met the rest of the band at football practice. And um, I think most of these as well have started out with bass guitar. Or whatever. Yeah. But... It, it's it's mental that kind of link. It comes up so much on the podcast, football, and then football injury music. 
I think it's, it's also like a reflection on the culture of the time, you know. Yeah. For young for young lads, what what did we do? We spent a lot of time outdoors, didn't we? A lot mm. more time outdoors in those days. And what do you do when you're outdoors? You play games. Yeah. And you get good at something and it becomes a kind of an obsession. Yeah, and that's the thing. You you do at, at that young age as well, you do think if if you play football at any sort of level, you think, Oh, I'm gonna be a footballer and the minute yeah. the, the minute yeah. that ends and you think, right, I need to I need to think of something else to do. To and, replace that huge hole in your life. Yeah. You know, I need something else to obsess about. And it became and music was right there. Yeah. And I was lucky, like I say, I went to a school that had a really good music department, so you could just wander in and there'd always be people milling about, you know, practising and playing instruments and there was always something going on and there's lots of guitars that you could borrow so you didn't have to own one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was very lucky in that regard. What happened then with the bottle garden going forward? Because obviously Robin's not in the blue tones, so... No, happened? well, that... Yeah, well, Robin, it was it was Robin's band, really, and Robin was such a driving force, always full of ideas. But we got to a point, as we were moving on, where Scott and I were writing more songs, and Robin was the vocalist, and we, we were finding it harder and harder to write songs that, that Robin could get into. And he was just moving in a different direction. It was, his was kind of... He was getting into... Sort of, wanted to go sort of more funky and formless. Right. And we were kind of honing our skills as songwriters and learning about learning about form (laughs) the opposite really and so we kind of just disbanded and got back together I've I've since found that this is a common story amongst some bands where you don't want to kick someone out of the band especially when they started the band so we just dissolved and then the other four members got back together without without Robin. Yeah. And it was fine. You know, we all made our peace. Um, it was probably, it was difficult for a little while, but after that and since then, it was all fine. It was all understood because he went on and did his own thing. Right. Whilst we did ours and it's just recognised, well, that was just a thing. It was just a thing. It's like our paths were together for a little while and then they moved in different directions. Mm. And there's no bad feeling or even guilt on my, you know, at that time you feel terrible, but not now. It was the right, it was the right for everybody. Yeah, I mean. But, he was, but, but, but it can't be stated enough that it, were it not for him, I p- probably wouldn't be in a band uh, yeah. or I've got into a band at that point anyway, because it was, I was so drawn to his energy, his dedication. Uh, and it was like, well, yeah, he's serious. We're, we're, that's, what, that's what you want. This isn't just like a lark. This is, I need to, I need this level of obsessiveness in my life, you know, yeah. I need something to get into. So, and, what, um, sort of, what sort of music were you listening to? Obviously, you mentioned you went to Stone Roses. Um, mm. What were your early, kind of early musical influences? Well, I was a pop kid growing up, and I was, just, you know, a charts obsessive. So, I'd buy lots of seven inch singles and I was a big, my favourites of like Duran Duran and later on I really got into the Pet Shop Boys and things like that. And as a result of the other artists, as a result of, as a result of liking the Pet Shop Boys, I got more into Depeche Mode and 
erasure and things like that at the time. And and then uh, this kid at school lent me a cassette of the Smiths. It was he put Hatful of Hollow on one side, and I can't remember what it was and, and the, uh, no, it was just it was just Hatful of Hollow on on a cassette, mm-hmm. and I became completely blown. I was completely blown away by the Smiths, and they opened up again a whole new world of music to me. The you know independent music. Indie music, jangly guitars, leather jackets. <laughs> and so I was listening to things like the Pale Fountains. I know the Pale Saints. Remember the Pale Saints? Mm-hmm. No. Before them, the, no, the Mighty Mighty Lemon Drops. No, the Mighty Lemon Drops. I'm thinking of the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. God, my brain is so cloudy. <laughs> so you, but you could get all these cassettes out of the library, couldn't you, with your library card? So I would just be discovering the cure and the mighty lemon drops and sisters of mercy and then the stone roses came along didn't they at the end of 88 and beginning of 89 and they just seemed so like technicolor compared to everything else i was listening to uh-huh. and and as a result of listening to them and reading their interviews and learning about the things that influenced them it kind of i that's when things really started to branch out for me and i started listening to old records records from the 1960s and the 1970s which i hadn't really done at that yeah. point you know there's that age when all that music is just old because i can identify it with it now because my kids are at a certain age where everything everything i like is just old mm-hmm. and even the music i make it's like your music sounds like old music so i guess so <laughs> and uh, but um and that's when it was around that time that I met Robin and we, you know, of, of similar age, well, same age. And we were both having the same sort of musical uh, flowering in terms of our tastes and this world of what's out there opening up to us. And uh, so discovering things like Jimi Hendrix and The Doors and the Buffalo Springfield and Neil Young. And, and yeah, that was around the time that, yeah, I started to think about writing songs myself. Right. Or try it, giving it, giving it a stab. Well, Scott and I are together in the beginning. So how how did that work then? You and Scott writing these songs. What was the process involved in that? Well, it was it, Scott would Scott's never really written lyrics, but he's he's he comes up with top lines and melodies, and so that's the same today. It's the same way we work. We would work today. He was just come. He comes in with a chord progression and says, "I haven't got any words, but here's the melody." And go da 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 ba 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 across the top, and then I'd have to go away and walk around the estate a few times with my walkman on, you know, listening to what that afternoon's practice <laughs> on a cassette, and that's and we just sort of meld our ideas that, that way, you know. We would literally sit there with two guitars and and bash songs out together. Um, because I think because we were brothers and we were so focused on the same thing, it was there was quite a sort of telepathic understanding between us. We'd go everywhere and take our guitars with us. I remember sitting down in the tin mines down in Cornwall, this old abandoned tin mine right on the edge of the country, um, and writing arrangements for some songs that ended up being on the first album. I remember mm. it very clearly, doing it and trying out new chords for a chorus, new chords for an ending, that sort of thing. We're just obsessed. I think you have to be 
I think it has to be your whole life if you want to make it. You have to, you know, it's more, it was more than just a hobby. It defined us from a very early age. We want to be songwriters. You sound like, obviously, you and your brother, Scott, you seem to have a, a good relationship. Obviously, it's kind of brat pop appeared in Oasis, uh, two brothers in bands, but then you had Embrace came out probably around about the same time as well, which <laughs> is brothers in bands, which they got on fine, Richard and Danny. Mm-hmm. And you seem kind of, you and Scott seem more the, the same as, as them. Obviously, not, not to go too far forward, but was there, did the media, did the press kind of try and compare you to Oasis at any point with the brother? Well, a, was, well, yeah, a number of times there was the inevitable thing, I mentioned of, you know, siblings in bands, etc. But our story wasn't. That's quite a good copy, was it? <laughs> if you get along, <laughs> people like to read more about. It. People like to read about conflict. They like to hear about it. It sort of, and it shrouds the creative process in even more mystery when the people that are making these things together appear to not get get along. Yeah, I can understand that. It's not a story, is it? No, I mean it's, it's very commonplace. It's more commonplace more than there seems to be more and more bands, even nowadays with. Uh, I spoke to a young band from Manchester a few episodes ago, and they're the same. They get two brothers, and again, everybody seems to get on fine. But everybody just wants that story, as you say, the Liam and Noel stuff, and it, it doesn't seem to be as prevalent as people think. I think if you like, if you've watched like movie credits, for example, when they roll past, you know, the stars of the movie and the main producers and whatnot. And you get to the technical departments, wardrobe, lighting, you know, the electricians. You often see lots of siblings yeah. in those teams because they've, it's the same sort of thing. They've grown up together with the same interests and, and fallen into the same careers. Um, and it's more common than you think. Yeah. People go into business all the time, don't know when they're siblings. But it's a better story when it's, when it's fisticuffs. <laughs> So, what, what then, obviously, you were writing your songs and that. How did you go about making demos? Where, where were you recording? We we got to a point where um, we made friends with Dodgy, that band Dodgy, because they lived in Hounslow as well. Even though they're from the well, two of them are from the Midlands, they found themselves in Hounslow and they were renting a house all together on the same estate as uh, at Scott and my, my grandparents. So we used to see them sometimes when we were walking over there for a Sunday lunch. These hippies hanging outside this, uh, you know, it was the messy house in the street. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, but we made friends with them. And eventually, like a room came up to rent in their house and I moved in. And then they got their record deal and a couple of them moved out and Adam moved in and Scott moved in. And eventually we sort of just inherited this house from Dodgy. And they'd had a, they'd created a space in the in the garden in the shed that they turned in. Well, it's a garage really that they turned into a rehearsal space. Um, so we inherited that. We, well, we we cleaned it up a little bit. It was it was a few years old and a bit damp. So we sort of renovated a little bit. So we had this space and we could make demos in there. And in the early days, Nigel from Dodgy still lived in the house uh 
so he would record us on his four track and some of our early demos recorded by Nigel. And we had a friend who was our live, um, who was our front of house guy and he'd been to school with Eds and he would come around and record us on his four track. And that's it's just in the living room. And we just do it in the day so as not to annoy the neighbors too much. <laughs> and um, yeah, that's really how we got going. It was like a little cottage industry, but it was, it was um, another fortuitous thing, meeting Dodgy at that time. Mm-hmm. When their career, their career was just starting to take off and we were just like apprentices, really, um, playing pub gigs and, and making our first demos. Um, what, what, sort of, what sort of songs came from those demos then? Was, was there songs on Expecting to Fly? Did they come Yeah, Slight, Re- Slight Return was one of the very first things that, we'd, that we wrote together. Um, Blue Tonic was the 11th song that we wrote together because it was called Number 11 for a long time. Right. Um, let me think. Colorado Beetle, which was an early B-side, would have made it around that time. Time and again, Talking to Clary, they were early demos as well. Um, cut, there was a, Yeah, Cut Some Rug was quite early. So within the first 20 songs that I think we wrote together, Eleven of them made it onto the album. Right, that's that's brilliant. That's not bad. It's not a bad yeah. start. And what then? What was gagging like at this time? Uh, where were you gagging? Just local? Mostly local. There was a pub. There was a pub in Brentford called the Red Lion, which specialised in putting on gigs, and we'd play there every couple of months, every two or three months. Um. And then now and again, we'd venture into London and play the Bull and Gate or something. But we, we tried to do it so that we could bring a posse with us rather than just play to an empty room. And you can't always get your pals to come to every gig. So yeah. you've got to space them out a little bit. So that's how we did it. And we got spotted, as it were. Uh, we got spotted one up when we were playing at the Bull and Gate. And, but in, of course, we were all living in this shared house none of us were working we were all signing on so now we didn't have any money we didn't even have a, uh, have a phone at the address no landline um and so uh, about three months after we played the bull and gate i went down to the phone box to get to call them up again and see if we could get another gig and just by chance the person that picked up the phone remembered us from our last performance and said, oh yeah, there's an, a, a guy asked you to give him a call after you last played, but there was no forwarding number. So I called him up and that guy turned out to be our manager. Right. In the end, uh, up until 2006. And again, just, it just feels like a lot of, a lot of good fortune fell our way that this, guy had seen us and liked us but the, the person who picked up the phone was the person that they'd spoke to initially three months prior and they'd remembered us yeah and so from that we he, he took us over he took control well gave us some guidance rather should i say as to what steps we should we should take where where we should play when we should play and then he was busying himself getting people from the industry to come to our gigs and it was from there that we started to get offered some really nice support slots with 
other upcoming bands who were like a little bit further in their career. So we started playing with bands like Strange Love. And we did a little tour with them. That was really uh, a really good education. They were a nice band to tour with. Um, and we played with Shed Seven a few times when they'd had singles out. I think their LP was just about to come out. We toured with Supergrass. And, you know, through doing that and being able to go around the country and have exposure to sort of new audiences, we started to sort of find one of our own. And um, and there we go. And then and then record companies started sniffing around because I was like, what's going on here? Yeah. And so you brought it, yeah. Fierce Panda brought it a couple of your early stuff as well. So that's right. Yeah, that's actually got the demo of Blue Tonic, Tonic on there. Number eleven, it's called right. on that. Right. It didn't have a title. <laughs> so, obviously, because you mentioned the Bill and Gate, I've had Simon Williams on the podcast. Um, and I think he was he was running about that area quite a bit. Yes, that's right. He used to run the he used to run those nights. Yeah. So. Is that where the fierce panda comes in? Did he see you there? And how yeah, that... and he and he and, and Neil, our manager, sort of got into his ear, and he wanted to. Uh, things were starting to. You know that, that word. There was a bit of a buzz about us, and he was quite keen to get us onto it. I think it was his second EP, wasn't it? He'd done one with. Uh, was it Supergrass? Yeah, it was Supergrass on. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's how that came about, really. He booked us, and then when things started to, you know, he, there's no doubt that that was a really key point for us, and it was a great help to our career that he did that. Yeah, I mean, there's so many bands I've kind of started out with. Fierce Panda, obviously, Coldplay and Keen came for their idol while, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Ash as well, maybe. Yes, Ash did, yeah. So it's amazing when you look at that kind of back catalogue and you think... That hit rate. Yeah, he's like a flipping truffle pig, the way he can sniff out these bands with longevity. (laughs) Uh, So how did that then progress after the Fierce Panda releases with with record companies come in? Um, Started circling and... They were all offer, offering us like demo time, free free studio time to go and make some demos. But we were, or our manager was canny enough to make sure that we retained all the ownership of those demos, despite the fact that, say, EMI or Ireland might have paid for it. Mm-hmm. And um, we took one of those demos and made us made a seven inch pressing. It it was slight like the, the demo a slight return, right and. It got into the hands of John Peel when he played it on his show one night. And that was kind of like a rubber stamp of people are going to listen to you now. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, people are going to take you a bit more seriously now. And um, and then it was just a case of... I say it's just a case of... It was a really exciting time. I mean, every gig we played, there would be some record company there to take us out to dinner. And it was a bit dizzying because everyone seemed really nice. <laughs> and everyone seemed like that it was a pretty good good deal. But in the end, we went with uh, A&M Records um, because they were going to allow us to keep our own imprint, which we'd had at that point, which was superior quality recordings. Mm-hmm. 
and they weren't going to get too heavy in terms of like the creative directions that we wanted to take. They were going to leave a lot of the big creative decisions to us, which is something in those days you take it for granted. Things like artwork and videos and how you present, how we presented ourselves, we were allowed to make our own decisions, which sounds remarkable, but it wasn't as rife as you think. Yeah. I mean, because there's so many bands at, at that time as well that there's, there must be so many deals to get signed, all these there's just so much, so there's so much competition. So for you to be able to kind of keep that control of what you're doing, that it's it's a big thing, and that's a you want to have the artistic control. Of. Yeah, yeah. We we knew we knew what we didn't want. We we knew what we didn't want to do, and the sort of videos we didn't want to make, and the way that our records we we didn't we didn't want them to look. We wanted to have. We had some very strong ideas in those days. And it was quite important that we were able to express them. you know we, we, we had ideas for videos I mean for me that's always been a big part of what being in a band is about it's not just thinking about the songs and the recordings it's about still being a fan and sort of um, wanting to present yourself in a way that makes yourself interesting to your you know retains your audience's interest mm-hmm. and it's not just leave it to somebody else you know, here's the song, here's the album. What about the video? Oh, it doesn't matter. What about the artwork? Oh, it doesn't matter. It's like, no, these things are key. Yeah. We yeah. can collaborate, but I think it's key that it comes from us. Obviously, like you mentioned the artwork. Was Scott involved in artwork? Yeah, he did He did the artwork for the second album, and then he did the artwork from the, all the albums from the fourth onwards. Right. So... um the original idea for the first album with the Peacock was that we wanted to sort of do a uh, a Led Zeppelin style sleeve where it was you had a peacock and you take out the um, some of the some of the eyes in the feathers would be missing and then you take out the inner sleeve and there'd be a portrait of the four of us and our eyes would slide in to <laughs> you know you know what I mean yeah yeah physical graffiti and all that sort of stuff with the windows but it was obviously far too expensive to be able to pull that off. Uh, and the record company were like, it's a great idea, but it means you're going to make no money from this album. <laughs> and um, and all the concepts for the artwork for the singles came from the band. Um, the newspaper, the truck, the bee, the sandcastle, all those. Uh, yeah, but they, they were set up and executed by an art department. But we came up with the ideas. For yeah. The front and back sleeve. And then on the second record, Scott was like, I might as well just do this myself because I've got some strong ideas about the feel of this record. Mm -hmm. And so Scott took it on there. And then I think with all the touring and everything that followed that and then going straight into doing the third album, we came up with a concept together, but we let someone else do it. And Scott just helped with layouts. But then from then on, he's done all the artwork. Yeah. Uh, from the f- from Luxembourg onwards. I, f- I think that's helped to sort of cement our identity as well in, in terms of like our visual identity. Yeah. I mean, it must it must make you feel comfortable knowing that, that you've user, user had to say and what gets released in that kind of 
aspect, the physical, the physical product that's there is something that you wanted. That that yeah, look. the place of the way it looks, etc. Yeah, yeah. So obviously, expecting to fly, it it did fly, didn't it? I mean, and it number one. So <laughs> uh, I mean at that time, right in the the middle of brat pop. I know people don't like to call it brat pop, but it's it's easy to kind of it's an easy kind of catch-all phrase for that time. Yeah, but I mean it was uh, it it was a brilliant time for music. The amount of bands obviously we've touched on a, a few of them: Supergrass, Dodgy, all, all this, Oasis, blah. There was just so much. All these. Guitar bands for you to come out like that with a number one album, and amongst all that, how did how did that feel at the time? Did you think that was yours on the road to world domination? Oh yeah, riches, <laughs> riches and glory. <laughs> well, no, it, um, it. I think the biggest shock came. Um, we were doing some promo stuff ahead of the album. Um, in Europe, so uh, the, the, at the time, the week Slight Return was released, and Adam and I were going to Germany and Holland and places like that, and just to do radio interviews and whatnot. And we were getting a connecting flight to Amsterdam when we got the midweek for Slight Return, and and that was one of those moments. We was like, are, "What? Are you are you serious?" <laughs> because <laughs> in midweek it was number two and it's like it's so far ahead of number three it's going to stay at number two it's not going to catch number one because it was Babylon Zoo which was out selling everyone else like three right. to one but it's like no you're going to go into the charts at number two lads <laughs> and, and it was just one of those it's like are you what <laughs> what are you talking about yeah your song it's gone over big what? And so that was the shock. And so I think the album was released two weeks later. So it wasn't quite a surprise, such a surprise that the album charted high. It was always, it was weird that it went to number one, but it was the real shock was getting that first, you're going to be number two in the singles chart, a slight return. It was kind of like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Let me see that. <laughs> yeah. This must be some kind of misprint. What are you talking about? I mean, uh, there must have been. I mean, like I know at the time, at that time, I was I was buying music, and I think everybody had their favourite band. But after I bought everything, I bought every album. You know what I mean? I had yourselves cast. Mm-hmm. I, I it because there was just so much. Even I would watch the Lightning Seeds at Glastonbury the other week, and you forget mm-hmm. they had. You know what I mean? There, there was just yeah. I know. I know. I, had a, I was in the um, last week. I went down to there's a local iron mongers, and uh, I was decided to do some DIY in the garden. And it's one. Of, it's, it's only like a little shop. It's a long shop. There's only one guy who works in there, and he was at the other end of the shop just whistling. And I could just tell from what he was whistling that he was whistling the light. You know, I could tell he was whistling the lightning seeds. That's how distinctive some of those melodies are. Instantly, like out of tune, guys. A guy's whistling out, out of tune, fifty feet away. And it's like, is that the lightning seeds? And I got to the two. I said, "Were you just whistling the lightning seeds?" He's like, "Yeah, that's good. I love that song." Yeah, <laughs> it was just so much. Like every every week, there was another anthem coming up. Mind you, had that 
the compilation albums was it indie anthems and it was just it was yeah and shine i the the compilations were brilliant and you could you could buy them i think every three months or something they would bring yeah. and it would basically like, like an indie version of now now that's what i call indie music yeah between the the two albums he brought out marblehead johnson as well as a mm. single i mean there's no a lot of bands do that yeah um, the one of the most famous ones, the Bullaces, for whatever. So, mm-hmm. what what was the reason behind that? Did you just kind of did you feel it didn't fit on either of the two albums? No, it was written afterwards. It was written after the album had been recorded, right? And um, it was more of a case of rather than release a fourth single from the album, which the record company wanted to do. Um. We were like, well, why don't we just stick another single that would draw attention to the album? Mm-hmm. You know, the Beatles used to do it, the Smiths used to do it, and we liked the idea of having these standalone singles. It felt like a, you know, it, as artistic statements, they are little things that don't belong anywhere else. And uh, I, 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 don't know, I, I think we, I think we wanted to get into the studio again and do something new, rather than just be, you know, going around the world miming a song that we knew very well. <laughs> that <laughs> <laughs> we've been playing for years it was you know i think a lot of those songs had been hanging around for a while like i say that we've been demo demoed them years before so i think we we're just desperate to record the next batch start on the next batch and then that was 96 in the summer of 97 we went in and started recording um the second album mm-hmm. which was quite different i think we saw i think we had a sense of some of the songs that were coming were a little bit different as well from the sound of the first record. But there you go. Well, on the second record, I think is probably your finest song. Yeah. I, I, I love that song. That, that is like one of the, my, my favourite tunes in that era. If, and I can mind, um, was it Teen the Park? The first time I went to Teen the Park, it was just me, me and my, my friend, two years mm-hmm. I don't know what age we had to be in 17, 18 or something. We'd never been at a music festival and we went. Obviously, the tickets would have been, and the tickets only cost about 50 quid or something. I, I bought the two tickets for me and my pal and we went with a, a 10 out of pound stretchers, <coughs> about 20 pound and a packet of peanuts between us. And, <laughs> and it passed down the full, the full uh, time we were there. And obviously, going to a music festival like that with just just two people, obviously we lost each other, and we found each other at the main stage watching the Blue Tones. Mm-hmm. Come on, so that that song just like it, it sticks in my memory for that. And then I think after that you played Mudslide, and obviously. Um, at the time, Tina Park was a fucking riot with the mud, you know. That's yeah. It so prophetic, but but I, I mean that that song F is like my number one Blue Tones song. So thanks, thanks just for writing that. You know what I mean for for everything else, man. But that that's the number one for me. Well, thank you for saying that. It's uh, my pleasure. It's thanks. It's great. It's a sweet story. It's a story of survival. It's a story- <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. And what happened then every year after that we went and we just added another friend so like, next year to the point where we were trying to lose each other at this point because we were all falling out. Um, but I F is number one for me. But the the thing with the, the, the songs, as you say, it was like the songs were sounding maybe a different. There seems to be a lot of different elements. You and the songs you can have like kind of country type songs or punk songs. Um, so was that was that like all the band kind of putting their influences together? Yeah, that is what it is. Yeah, that is. I mean, it's a it's a four way thing with us. Everything becomes a blue tone song once everybody's had a go at it. There's mm-hmm. not somebody in the band that dictates creative ideas but you, you try to you start out with a strong idea in your head but then it goes into the room and someone will um create something that you never would never have thought of take a song in a direction that you would never have considered and go oh actually that's that is better than my idea and then you move over there mm-hmm. and it becomes uh like uh, for example the jab jab bird on that it started off it was like a three four kind of folky song with a you know a it was going to be quite quite acoustic guitar heavy but then one day scott just started he stuck on his fuzz pedal and just started that playing that crazy riff over it it's like oh no actually we'll take it in that direction i think <laughs> you know it's like that's got more than a little something to it um and that happens all the time and that's the wonderful thing about being in a band that's what i've missed since we've last recorded together is that um sort of chance the opportunity for spontaneity because when you're working on your own, um, there's, you don't have that so much, someone to bounce ideas off of, which I like, which I enjoy as well, having like executive decisions. But um, I also really love coming out of a room, a rehearsal room, and feeling like, crikey, I did not see it going in that direction. And how the hell did we end up here in a good way, you know, with a song yeah. like that? where you've been hammering away at an arrangement and then finally it falls into place and it sounds completely different than it did at the beginning of the day. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, you'd be so hard that you couldn't pigeonhole, you couldn't say, this is a blue tone sound. Like, you, there's certain bands that obviously mentioned Oasis quite a bit, but you, you say, there's Oasis, that's Oasis's sound. But blue tones is so, there's so much different. Thanks. I think so. When, even within an album, you know what I mean? There's, there's so many different sounds, which it, for me, it makes it, it's a journey on, on the album for the listener because you're, you're, you're listening to so much different styles. I think that's true of all of our records except for one. I think when we made Luxembourg, we we, we, we did go in with quite a narrow sort of, parameter for ourselves we were the, the rule was like no acoustic guitars on this album this is going to be an electric album no long songs we're mm-hmm. going to keep it snappy and poppy and sort of new wavy you know we were listening to stuff from that era like a lot, a lot of things were inspiring us from like Devo and the Ramones and Squeeze and oh, what other bands from around that time but just 
you know, and the, you know, early Elvis Costello records and that sort of thing. That 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 sharpness. So we that, that's the only time we've set ourselves that thing. And it says on the sleeve, it's like no acoustic guitars were harmed in the making <laughs> of this record. And um, because I think at that point in our career or our creative journey, whatever you want to call it, coming off the back of Science and Nature, which was an album which was quite broad in its sort of, we did cherry pick from a few different genres. With that, we were like, let's make let's make a good old, because we're going to have to tour the shit out of this. So let's make an album we can play every single night, you know, and be thrilled by. So you've yeah. got these edgy, lots of lots of downstrokes on the electric guitar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, obviously, expecting to fly, as you say, that, that came in at number one. Return to the Last Chance of set and album number 10, and then Science and Nature was... Top ten as well, number seven in the charts. Mm. After obviously, then, then the singles album came out, which I can mind as well. Which at that time, as we say, like with these indie anthems and shine and all that, all the bands had so many good singles. So, all all use bands releasing singles collections were they, they were brilliant albums in themselves because you did have so much. So much a catalogue to choose from. Um, but after that, after the singles album, Luxembourg came out and then <coughs> there seemed to be a decline then, obviously, in chart success. Yeah. So if we been, if we having three top ten albums to then kind of watching yourself slowly deteriorate, in a chart sense of the world, but obviously, I mean, you, you're always... You were deteriorating in a mental sense as well. Yeah. How has that, that, well, that's what I was going to touch on. How How is that then to take seeing kind of the, the music waning? I think, uh, you know, sometimes, it's, you know, very, very, very few artists are able to sort of maintain that high level of success. There's not many stories where they have. Um, you know, when you're on the top table for your whole career. Yeah. And we, I th- you know, we just took it all in our stride, really. We like, we recognised the fact that we'd been in fashion and the only thing that's guaranteed when you're in fashion is that pretty soon you're going to be out again. And this was like, well, let's just keep making good records. And then hopefully, you know, we'll be, in, we'll be evaluated on our own terms instead of as part of something which is now seen as quite passe and a bit dead. <laughs> But by whom? But you know, so yeah. So, but you've obviously to continue making records, then you you've kept like a a hardcore fans in that will followed you throughout your career. Mm. After the singles album, I'd, I'd be honest and say I kind of I went. I probably went in a different musical direction. Obviously, the, a lot of people did. Yeah, the podcast called Time for Heroes. So. <laughs> I mean, the libertines came out and all that, and then I kind of went in that direction. But like looking at your your stuff, obviously, the self titled album, the Blue Tones, failed to chart, and then was uh, you you went to what you call it, cooking vinyl, is that right? That's right, yeah. But did you have the, was there still some? albums to release on a record deal because obviously there's all these album, like compilations that come out, a rough outline come out, B-sides and singles. 
yeah, that was yeah, collecting all the B sides and everything into one place. Because I think the singles album had come out, but some of those singles had like four B sides. You had the double format CDs, didn't you, with two different B sides on each one? Because mm-hmm. there just seemed to be so much. <coughs> Obviously, 2006 rough outline, then the, the self titled album, then 2007, the radio sessions, which the BBC radio sessions, the albums are always brilliant because you, you always get hidden gems in there. But you had that, then you had the live album, and then the oh, yeah. early early years. All, all these out in two thousand and seven. Yeah, so, I think that was tied up with the cooking vinyl deal. They had first dibs on that stuff. Right, it was a one album firm deal with first dibs on these um, demos and unreleased tracks. It was one of those. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, like then the year after that, we got a. Your solo record. So, what was the? Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, what was the thinking behind that? When did you decide? Well, it was a point. Um, it was a distinct point after we'd been touring, where um, my Eds and Adam were about to become parents again, Mm -hmm. and. It was decided let's have a natural break from touring so they can everyone can sort of settle down into this new thing because until that we'd just been you know carefree as it were, but now we've got responsibilities. And I got approached by an independent label and they said we'd be interested in putting a solo album if you ever thought about it, and I hadn't thought about it. Um, and so I did. I, I said okay, and they gave me a sort of modest budget. And I recorded it with Gordon, who I've recorded everything with since. And he's produced two Blue Tones albums as well. He's did um, Luxembourg and A New Athens. Mm-hmm. And he's done all of my solo albums. And, um, and he's done things like he recorded After Hours as well, years ago. I think that's when we first met him. So, 2000, so I've known him 22 years. And um, yeah, so I just thought, okay, yeah, that's a nice idea. I've got some songs that are going to be hanging around. And I, you know, I had, I had three or four in my pocket anyway. And I thought, okay, I just need another five or six songs. So hey, I'll do this. And let's just see where it goes. And the rest of the band said, yeah, great idea. Uh, and I got them to play on it, of course. Um, and it was just an aside, really, just so I had something to do. And, and having been in, like I said earlier, having been in this collaborative group for so long it was a, a nice challenge to be in charge you know, yeah. <laughs> you know? so oh, okay I can say what goes if you know what I mean so I've got I've got editorial or editorial you know veto on this which I thought that'd be that'd be that'd be fun and I just enjoyed being in the studio and playing around and you know it doesn't time just Whizzes by when you're in the studio. It's you haven't. I just. I really love that process. Then going forward, then like going back to like a couple of years later, then you made a new Beatles mm-hmm. record. How does that feel? Then going back to that, like you've had this control, and now you're going back to the band dynamic. That was great. That was, was it fine. Crazy? It's absolutely fine. It was. This is. Uh, there was no push. There's never really been any 
uncomfortable push and pull between the band members when it comes to that sort of thing. There's no one trying to stamp their mark too firmly. People have strong ideas, but if they're not working, they don't work. You know, if someone's got a better idea, and it's usually a, it's usually a very evident. But no, there's no, there's no. I mean, people have said this just before when we were we recorded an EP in 2005 called Serenity Now, and we worked with this guy called Darius, who'd been our front of house guy, and he was like a, he's like a dance house producer. And he'd never, he hadn't had that much experience working with bands before. But we went after this studio for a week or five days and recorded four songs. And we, during the mixing process, he would like call us in individually or we'd wander in individually because it takes bloody hours and you don't spend hours in the room because it drives you nuts. That's why you pay these guys. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> he'd, he'd, come, he'd play something to us and we'd give an opinion and then leave and then... I was like, for example, I'd say I'd go in and say, "Oof, bass sounds a bit quiet," and he'd go, "Okay, well, I bear that in mind." And then Adam would come in half an hour later and listen to it and go, "Oh, bass sounds a bit quiet." You know, we'd all say the same thing. Or <laughs> what are those? Well, you know, what are those sprinkly things you put over the, the hi hats? Yeah, I don't like those. Don't like, what, what? What do the others say? No, they don't like it either. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so we'd always be on the same page. We talk about things a lot when we when we when we're making them when we're arranging the songs. We're talking about we use references for different passages of songs. Like we want it to sound like this, and it goes a bit here. So you got all this noise and then nothing. You know that sort of thing. But and everyone's on the same page. Mm-hmm. It, it, I'm, it not just, making, I'm not making it very clear. I'm making it sound really dumb. I know, but it's difficult no, to... no. It's just it's totally different for like obviously one of the bands that I've been into, obviously Libertines era, um, and being Scottish, I've been a fan of the View, mm-hmm. um, and obviously they broke up twenty twenty seventeen or something, whatever, and then Kyle went and done. Two solo records and then they're back together like this album coming out, but the looks just like it doesn't look as if it's the same kind of ethic. I mean, I've listened to the new album, obviously it's not yet, but there's there's a good few songs that that look like they could be Kyle Faulkner solo songs, right? And it it looks to me as if this album will come out and then that'll be that and then it'll be back to Kyle. Um, so obviously what you're saying is then you were able to fit back in quite easily. It's yeah. Like, the bands not, hadn't changed any in those couple of years away. No, no, not at all. I missed I'd missed that thing of having their demos to listen to. Mm-hmm. I'd missed that thing of because Adam and Scott have always got some good ideas. And they, you know, everyone's got their slightly different style of writing, certainly at the demo stage, or, or, or things are presented in a way that you can tell whose it is at that stage. Uh-huh. And I missed, I, I had missed that, and I really got a kick out of doing that again. And then, and in fact, Adam and I drove down to Cornwall for five days just with the intention of finishing off all of these songs, because Scott had 
Scott songs as well because he wasn't around. He was living in, I think he was already living in. No, he was living in Scotland at the time. He was living in Edinburgh at the time. And we, you know, we we'd, we'd we'd rehearsed these songs, but they needed something else. They needed just a little bit of finishing off before we did the final pre-production rehearsal and then start recording. And I remember thinking how much I really enjoyed the team feeling, even if it, when it was just him and I, of just not, I like doing it on my own, but it's just, just a real, you know, there's sparks happen when there's someone else there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, you know, there's no ego in our band, really. There's no one in charge. I might sometimes be viewed as the, like, the, the spokesperson, but it's not to say that I'm speaking for myself, you know. Yeah. I mean, that, that's naturally going to come, being the, the front man, being the singer. You're, you're going to be kind of labelled as that. Obviously, the, the new album came out, A New Athens. Um, we went ahead about that, that failed to chart as well, did it? Yeah, well, that was a whole mess. It was a really odd time. Between 2006 and 2010, when that came out, was a kind of straight, a fairly odd time for us behind the scenes, which is why we took like that decision in 2011. We'll just call it a day. Mm-hmm. In 2006, we were embezzled. Well, we'd found out that we'd been had been embezzled and had been for some time by our manager, the one I mentioned before, uh-huh. uh, to the tune of quite a lot of money. And we were on the... Eve, when I say the Eve, it was the day before we were due to fly out to New York to start a North American tour, which was then going to go across to Japan and New Zealand and then back home, like around the world ticket and then back home. But we discovered that none of the flights had been paid for, none of the hotels had been booked and all of the deposits had been received and spent. And all this money we'd been squirreling away to pay for the flights and pay for the hotels had just been squandered. And he just sent us all a text message basically saying goodbye. <laughs> and um, uh, and so there we were. When, when we were up in Scotland at the time, I can't remember the name of the town. It was the one, where did they invent lace? I'm not sure. Bellin or Perth? I'm not sure. Oh, so it, was, it was there anyway. We were there. We were there to <laughs> play a gig. And so that was a bit of a kick in the teeth for the band collectively because not only were it was all this, you know, we thought we were going to New York the next day. Yeah. Uh, but, but we had huge debts. Our tax bills hadn't been paid for years. Even though we'd given all the money over, it had been taken out of our accounts, etc. It was a, such a trusting relationship. Um, so we basically had to do a UK tour and a European tour, knowing that we weren't going to make a single penny from it because it was just covering debts from the, the you know, the studios we'd used, the rehearsal spaces we'd used, the people that were driving us around, our crew hadn't been paid. So you've got to sort all those things out. Otherwise you're fucked. Everyone just thinks that you're, you're a crook. Yeah. You can't walk away from debt like that. And so we spent a few years doing that. We got picked up by this other management company and they were very enthusiastic. They said all the right things. They had 
great facilities. They had a studio that we could use and stay at. It was on a farm. <clears throat> they were already managing, you know, successful acts. And, and I don't think that they, I think that they thought that we were some sort of um, cash cow that they could just jump on the back of, you know. And at that time, we needed a little bit of work because Britpop was just a dirty word and the scene that we'd been associated with was a, a dirty word. And we recorded a new Athens and there was some interest from a major label. I think it was Mercury at that time, Mercury Records. It was one of the universal labels. And our management put all their eggs in one basket and said, we're going to sell this record to Mercury, uh, Mercury, we're going to get X amount of money, they want to promote it around the world, it's all back on, lads. But at the last minute, the record deal fell through, and we just had this record that was finished, we had artwork for it, and they just sort of shoved it out through the back door on their own in-house label, which was already a conflict of interests. You can't have your management running your label. But we had a tour booked, and we had nothing to promote. So it came out like that, didn't chart, didn't sell very many copies. And after that experience, and we felt very let down, it was difficult to sort of keep picking ourselves up and dusting ourselves off again. It felt yeah. like we've had five years of it. So we decided to put our baby away rather than see it get kicked around anymore. Mm. And, um, and then we disbanded and that was going to be it and it was it for a while we didn't part on bad terms we parted on the best terms possible um you know within the group it was a collective decision and it um it happened so much so didn't you hear these stories around the music industry a management fucking trap them up their bands and whatever obviously like Stone Roses had to yeah used to be a common story I mean you then you made another solo album or you made you made a Flash of Darkness 24 yeah. and then you brought it the covers album but I mean how, how do you go in I mean how how, do, how are you able to trust people after something like that it must be so hard to put your trust in management and it is uh, yeah it's been difficult to give the reins back fully to anybody since then we've taken on more responsibility uh, ourselves yeah. with, with regards to our finances for starts and um and the people we let close to us now in terms of who is going to manage us as it were or well, adv advise. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, but I don't think you can let it destroy your faith in humanity, a, a few bad experiences. You you won't be taken for a fool again, but there has to be trust. But yeah. It, maybe it has to be earned a little bit more, um, or someone has to go a little bit further to earn it these days, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Is, you don't want to get cynical, for God's sakes. Otherwise, you just get out of the game altogether. And that's what happened to us in 2011. We yeah. were becoming cynical. So obviously, I, I, like I mentioned, uh, 
the covers album, the, the Taste of Mark Morris. I was listening to it last night at work. Brilliant album, brilliant um, musically. I don't know any of the songs. Oh, um, really? No. Um, like, I've never heard any songs, but it was, it was brilliant. So, like, oh, who, thanks. Who, who are some of the people you've covered in that album? Because um, is, is the Pet Shop Boys are on there? Right. So you Buffalo do that, Springfield. Type of music too. Yeah, it was like, it was it was um the thing was I'd done a flash of darkness and I'd hit a, hit a bit of a sort of a sort of beige patch in terms of writing and I and I well, I hadn't written enough songs to go back into the studio to do another record and Acid Jazz were interested in putting out another record. So I suggested what, and I really just wanted to get back in the studio. It's like I said earlier, I felt like I was getting rusty. And I found the process of deconstructing other people's songs and then putting them back together, seeing how they work, seeing all the parts and going, oh, that's fairly simple, really. It really helped me grease the wheels for my own creativity again. So I did that album and then I had a bunch of songs of my own almost raring to go. Well, not a few months later. You know, it's kind of difficult to explain. I, t- I tried to turn like a creative slump into something that was fun and productive because it really just, just got me into the studio and got uh-huh. me back into the process. It's looking at it from a different viewpoint as well, isn't it? Obviously, Paul Weller did um, like a covers album, Studio 150. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, again, I've, like... Don't get me wrong, there, there was a few songs on that that I knew, but again, there, there was some songs that I wasn't aware of and then got me into listening to, going back and listening to the artists um, through Paul Weller. So that I'm going to go back and search out these songs and, and find the originals and have a listen to them as well. I think that's what I might do tonight at work. Uh, you might be surprised. You might be surprised. Some of them are sort of... Uh, there's a Madonna song on there. <laughs> there's a Laura Branigan song on there. I had one of my previous guests pretty early on my podcast was um, Chris Helm. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I think initially after speaking to him, I think I tried to contact you then about the podcast through some management company. Um, it's really hard to get guests booking them through management. Management are murder at getting back to you. So I've come up with these new routes of getting my guests. But obviously he mentioned, and you mentioned earlier about Dodgy as well, and he, so he mentioned that he's done some solo shows, Chris Helm, yourself and Nigel Clark. Mm-hmm. Um, so how was that then, going back out and tour with these guys? Yeah. That was great fun. I've known... Like I say, I've known Nigel for a very long time, 30 years, let's say. And um, and I've been working with Chris since about 2010, 2011, and doing a lot of gigs with him. So it was just good fun, and it was nice to sort of share the load. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's uh, it can be quite a lonely furrow, this one that we plough as uh, solo performers. So um, that was just good fun, and it's it, and we were starting to write some songs together as well. And um, 
thinking about a collaboration, but that's that didn't get off the ground. Uh huh. He's a funny guy, Chris. Um, when I did that interview, obviously I was, as I say, it was pretty early on in the podcast, and I think maybe like episode five or something. And uh, I can mind start the interview in the, the first ten minutes. I thought, I don't know if I don't know if I like this guy. I don't. Yeah. I don't know if I can um, carry this interview on. Cut to two and a half hours later, half eleven at night. I was like, Look, I really need to go. I've, I've not had my dinner or anything. I couldn't get him off. He was brilliant. He was brilliant. Um, was he drinking red wine? I think he was, yeah. He's quite eccentric, <laughs> isn't he, Chris? He's sorry? He's quite eccentric. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he's got but I, I think I, he's. I think he. I think he's. I think he. He can sometimes be a little bit guarded, but again, I think he's had his fingers burnt as well. So perhaps yeah. that's. Well, I think that's maybe how the the interview started. He, he, he seemed quite kind of. He did suspicious. Yeah, <laughs> but as the interview only opened up, and it was I, I couldn't get rid of him. It was a, a brilliant <laughs> night. <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah, he's a good conversationalist. Mm. You've had a couple of other projects, obviously. I've noticed the the maples with Mark Berry. Oh yeah, that's right. That was that was a, God. That's like ten years ago now. Gee yeah. whiz! Yeah, that was good fun. I, I that came about because um, I met Matt at a um a comedy night. We were a, a mutual friend was doing a little sketch show, and they were trying it out in this room above a pub before they took it to Edinburgh, and um. I met him there and we got talking and then he contacted me. I think he must have got my number from somebody, another mutual friend, because he was doing a radio show at the time on... Um, XFM. Oh, that wasn't XFM, it's the other one. Oh, blimey. The one that's got 90s and 80s categories. Absolute, that's it. Absolute, that's it. <laughs> yeah, he was doing it. In the early days of Absolute Radio, and he was—he had like a Saturday night, and he—I uh, think he needed a guest, so he got me on the show, and we just started hanging out after that, and then I was doing my sort of solo acoustic gigs, and I've not been doing them for like terribly long time at that point, and he wanted a bit of the action. He's like, "That looks like fun," so we went out together. Um, as the, uh, we were called the Swedish Twins mm-hmm. and we did, we did sort of a dozen or so gigs together and um, and then when Kill the Wolf was ready to, and then he got then he invited me in to, to do some backing vocals on Kill the Wolf when he was recording it and then I'd always said to him listen if you need the rhythm guitarist in that band of yours just give me the call you know <laughs> And when he wanted, when he came to talk, kill the wolf, he said, "You fancy coming along and playing rhythm guitar with the band?" And I, you know, I jumped at the chance because I thought the idea of going on tour and not being the main focus, as it were, you know, the singer or or just being out of groove away in the shadows, was very appealing. Yeah. And and his band are a real, real top draw musicians as well and so I felt like I was learning every day and getting better just by playing with them and uh, 
so that's how that evolved really and then um so i was a maypole right until they've they've not played we've not played for a few years because he's too busy mm -hmm. he's too busy now he's a international sensation <laughs> so before we go into your heroes because uh, i touched it was then just what's coming up for you in the future what's going on with, with tones is there going to be a new album or anything like that new music well well yeah two weeks from tomorrow we're getting together is it no two weeks from tomorrow no it's two weeks from yesterday i beg your pardon we're getting together um we've got three shows so that'll take us probably about three or four hours to rehearse the set for that. So we've got another few days where we can just mess about. So we're going to be exchanging ideas. And I've got a handful of songs I'm going to share with the band. Scott's sent some demos over. Adam's been playing me some songs. So we're going to spend a bit of time and seeing if we've got anything, you know. And if we have, I think we'd like to do some more recording. I certainly hope that's the case. But that's the plan, and that's in a couple of weeks. And then at the end of the year, we're getting together again in October to do a, a tour. We're playing the whole of the second album. Right. Uh, that's the plan. Um, have you got have you got dates announced then for that? Yeah, yeah. It starts it starts um, mid October. Let me just check my diary. Hang on. When's the first one? Diddly do, diddly do. Norwich on the 12th of October. Right. Uh, and it winds up, and we're in uh, Norwich, we're in Glasgow the day after my birthday, which could be interesting. Right. <laughs> and it ends on the 27th in Brighton. I'll have a so look at that then. That'll be, be nice, obviously, that's it, and album. Um, yeah, it's going to be a challenge, man. We have not, some of those songs we've not played for a very long time. What's the script? Are you playing it in its entirety? And yeah, exactly. yeah, from beginning to end, and then come back out and do a a bit of a greatest hits collage at the end. Now oh, that sounds good. Definitely sounds good. I'll be up for that. Yeah, drop us a note. Where, right, where, um, where, where, where are you living then? Are you up in? I'm just outside Glasgow. Oh, you come to come to the Glasgow gig then. I'll sort it out. We'll try and, rope, try and rope in my pal and see if we can we can stay with each other the full gag. Yeah, <laughs> put apple tags on each other. <laughs> yeah, that that's brilliant. Yeah, I'll be well up for that. At the end of the podcast, obviously, we've been called Time for Heroes. I asked my guests to pick four heroes to come for dinner. Why are they your heroes? And what would you cook them as well? That's a good one. Four heroes for dinner? Yeah. I'm no, I'm, don't get me wrong, I'm no strict on the, the amount of guests because people give honorary mentions and whatever. Some people can narrow it down to four. So if you want to have more than four, I'd, I'm not that strict on it. We're coming, well, up to, we're coming up to episode 50 and I'm, I'm looking at well doing like a league table of all these people that have been picked throughout the, the 50 episodes. So what's the average number of people that people have been choosing? You got a few people stuck to it. I mean, I had Gemma Clark for Baby Shambles. She picked about 15 different people. <laughs> that's, a lot. that's a lot of catering. Yeah. <laughs> well, heroes, who would you like to have to dinner? Well, 
Christopher Hitchin, you know him? I've heard him, yeah. He's a writer journalist. He passed yeah, yeah, away yeah. about 12, 13 years ago, actually. He's someone I think would be fascinating to have around the dinner table because he seems to get a talk on a great number of subjects with some panache. <laughs> I'd like to pick his brains. The world's certainly a, uh, a less inquisitive place without him in it. Yeah. Uh, so that's the hitch. See, I would invite Chrissy Hind, but then I'd have to make it all vegetarian, otherwise she'd do her nut. Because <laughs> she's quite militant. So <laughs> everyone would have to have salad because Chrissy's here. Because uh, I couldn't just do a separate salad, could I? Because she would be annoyed that we're all having spaghetti bolognese. <laughs> um, who else would I like to invite um, so I'll tell you who I think would be a good guest and this is uh, Zlatan the only right. I'm fascinated by him I think he's a very uh, I, I think he's an interesting guy I think I, I don't know how seriously he takes himself I think he's having a real laugh at us. You think? Or the media. I think he's so focused on, he, he believes so much in his ability. I mean, some of the, some of the things he's done as well, but like, mind that overhead kick. Yeah. 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 I, that that, was a friendly. I think he scored four goals that night, didn't he? Yeah. Was that was that a friendly though as well? I, I think yeah. Because yeah. they're all about that, mind the... Uh, England, Colombia, the the scorpion kick. Yeah, it, what's his name? Rene Aguita. Rene Aguita, but they always throw that back at him as well. That, uh, but it was a friendly. You wouldn't have done that in a real game. <coughs> and they say the same thing about Zlatan, but I, I mean, the the guy's a fair age as well. I think he's he's still he's forty now. I think he's just retired. I loved it. I, I saw his retirement thing uh, when he gave his speech in the. Uh, it was at the uh, it was at the San Siro, and the away fans were booing. <laughs> he, he addressed the away fans uh, directly. He said, "You're you don't realise you're in the presence of greatness. <laughs> <laughs> you, you may be booing me now, but you'll be telling everyone you were here for the rest of your life." <laughs> yeah, I love him. Yeah, and he, here he could he could go as well. If you went, it doesn't take any shot. No, he plays a grudge, doesn't he? Yeah. Uh, what's that? that Lukaku as well at Inter. Yeah. <laughs> and is it what's the name of that defender? The uh, the one that got headbutted by Zidane. Matarazzi. Yeah. He had a he had a famous run in with him, didn't he? I think he waited three seasons to get his own back and <laughs> pretty much cut him in half. Yeah, I like him. I know he's got a bad side, but that's sport. That that's uh, the last guest I had put Bruce Lee, so that's like um, two two weeks in a row I've had some sort of Kung Fu reference <laughs> Was everybody really Kung Fu fighting? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's two that's three and no, I will have Chrissy Hine there we will have salad uh -huh. I don't want to upset her I, I, I did meet her once a long long time ago it was backstage or after an after party I think there'd been like an enemy awards or something and I think we'd had one single out or maybe two singles out. And she was, I was talking to her backstage and she was um, good friends with that boxer, Michael Watson, the one that uh, was hospitalised and since 
you know, had his yeah. difficulties after a fight with Nigel. Was it Chris Eubank or Nigel Ben? One of the two. Can't yeah. remember that detail. But we, I remember speaking to her for what seemed like the longest time, just talking about boxing. And she like, obviously she, knew her she, stuff. Uh, boxing, yeah. She certainly was around then, and she she knew far more than I did. Right. And, but she just seemed like such an open person talking to us kids, you know. Yeah. She didn't, she didn't, know, she didn't know who the hell we were from Adam, and so I, I, I think she'd be good company. She did seem to still be held in high regard, and she's got such influence. Like, watching her, watching them at Glastonbury the other week as well. And the she gift. commanded it. She was brilliant. And those yeah. songs, those when those old those classics are just like beacons of light, you know. And on a day full of music, those songs still stand head and shoulders above most things there. Yeah, I don't. I don't often watch the Glastonbury stuff because I'm usually away working. But I was home that weekend, and the sun was shining. And I watched most of it in my garden on, you know, on the iPad with a gin and tonic and a doobie on the go. And I there was some. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the BBC coverage because <laughs> I'm usually quite sort of down on Glastonbury. I think, why does it get such a like free ride? It's like the BBC just turns into a big advert for Glastonbury for like a month leading up to it. Yeah. And it seems a little, you know, a, a little unfair on all the other great festivals we have in this nation. It's hard. Uh, I like it for a Saturday night. I've been, I've been, st- I mean, even. At the weekend there, I was I, I just put the iPlayer on and just sat with the matches and just um we were watching old ones. I think I think last at the weekend there we watched Glastonbury twenty thirteen. Just all mm-hmm. that it's nice to just kind of stick that on the telly and sit and get a drink of it. I did enjoy it. Yeah, I must I must admit I did enjoy it. It was a very pleasurable weekend. I didn't want to end. You know, Sunday night was like oh yeah. I watch Queens of the Stone Age now because you know I watched the Elton John one live. It felt like it was significant, mm-hmm. and then I watched Queens of the Stone Age the next day, and they were amazing. Yeah, I only watched Arctic Monkeys the other the other night there as well. Yeah. And, I mean they got a hard time for for their sets as well. I don't but understand I, why. I thought yeah. it sounded brilliant from where I was. Yeah, I thought it was immaculate. People Me just. Too. People don't want the band to evolve, though. That, that, they, they just want to hear the, the sound of the first album. Yes. Yeah. That's Well, do they? Or just the loud ones? Yeah. I mean, it's, ha- it's happened again. It up here, Scottish boy, Paolo Natini. He played Transmit last year. And again, like, that guy's music has evolved so much in the 10, 15 years he's been at that... He can't play the first album the way the fans want it, because yeah, he, he wants to play it a different way. Which yeah. I understand. I love it. I love hearing it in a different aspect. But you get these. It's the younger fans. They just they just want to hear. Play the record. Play yeah. the CD. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I know uh, he's great, Paolo Nutini. I've got a a little story I can tell you about Paolo. My connection to Paolo. Uh, a few years ago, I think it was 2010, I was invited onto the panel at the Ivan Novellos to to be uh, select the album of the year. Mm-hmm. And um, it was over two days, which were kind of like about a month apart. And um, 
So you start with like 60 albums, you whittle it down to a list of 10 or 12, and then you come back and you debate which three you think, one, one winner and two for consideration. And I thought Paolo Nutini was, Paolo Nutini won it that year for his second album. Um, what's it called? <laughs> one with pencil for the... Sorry? The, the, the one that had candy on it? Yeah. Yeah, one with candy hey. on it. And I think that got album of the year. Dizzy Rascal got second. And third was the Duckworth Lewis Method, right. which, which I was a big, big, big fan of. And I was like Henry Fonda and 12 Angry Men getting that album into the final three. I wasn't going to budge. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm proud to say I had a part in Paolo Nutini winning the Ivan Avello for that album. I was on the panel that year and it was it's an outstanding record. I'll, I'll, oh. I'll, if I ever get him on the podcast, I'll mention that he, he owes you. He owes me a <laughs> Yeah. So, aye, so we've got Christopher Hitchens, Chris yeah. Slatan. Yeah. Slatan, that's right. See, normally, right, I would consider Neil Young to be one of my heroes, certainly musically. I mean, he's such a changing man over his you know long career. He's been so many different things in terms of things he comes out with but i've just like not that long ago i read his most recent autobiography uh which is read by powers booth which does help uh and let me tell you it is a boring boring read um <laughs> so despite the fact that he is certainly a hero of mine i would not have him at the dinner party <laughs> i feel like he'd want to just talk about his train set or right. this new digital uh, amplifier that he's developing for cars. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's a lot of that in the book. Uh, so so I'm not going to have Neil Young. Uh, who would I have as a good... Rick Mayle would be a good guest to have, and certainly a hero. Certainly right. someone who wouldn't let the conversation dry up. And um, another one of those people is like, I, I think the world really misses his voice in it yeah not that he was not that he was like a he was like a spokesperson for anybody or anything other than himself or maybe spitfire beer <laughs> but uh you know it's always nice to have somebody like a comedian of some sort as well because they they would yes. light up the room just to lighten everything every now and again just to pop everyone's balloon <laughs> Think of all the egos at this table. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if Zlatan would get uh, Black Mail's... A lot of Rick's humour, but it'd be interesting to watch it, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> watch the process. <laughs> and and they're going to have salad, are we? Yeah, yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't I think, think Rick Mail would be talking this up. I think, I think um, Zlatan would be happy with that as well. He's still after himself, didn't he? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, he might let himself go now that he's retired. Yeah. He might get super big. He's going to be the biggest ex-footballer there ever was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a great bunch of people. I don't know what's happened, obviously. I don't know, again, as I mentioned both mic, Stuart Robertson that's been getting me these guests Yeah. the last few weeks. The, the heroes that these guests have been picking, it's been so varied. Um, so 
and that might all be down to Stuart Robertson picking me a better calibre guest. <laughs> an absolute pleasure, man. They're, they're a, a great bunch of folk to come for dinner. That'll do, won't it? Yeah. That'll keep things ticking over. Yeah, so I absolute pleasure having you in the day, Mark. Well, um, likewise, look at us, the time's gone whiz by. That's like an hour and a half we've been chatting here. Yeah, I'll get dinner to make and then that's when you work again to listen to all these, um, listen to these bands for the cover album. That's what I'm going to do tonight. Oh, yeah, that's some homework for you. Yeah, but I absolute pleasure having you in. Good luck with the the tour coming up. Yeah. Blanks and all that in the description. I'll, I'll tag you in all the stuff and I'll post all your, your links so that people can get to you. But I absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you very much for nice taking... to talk to you. Brilliant. And listen, I'll stick you with a plus one for the 19th of October. Brilliant, mate. I'll, I'll hold it now. Stick it in my diary now. Brilliant. Aye. Pleasure having you on. Pleasure's all mine, sir. See you soon. Yes, mate. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Time for Heroes podcast. If you would like to get in touch, the best way is on the Facebook page, Time for Heroes podcast, or on Instagram at Time for Heroes podcast, or Twitter at Time for Heroes P1, or drop me an email at Time for Heroes pod at gmail.com You'll find Time for Heroes on all podcast platforms including Spotify, Apple, Google and Amazon. Please leave a review where you can, share with others and more importantly, enjoy. Enjoy.